You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Bronwyn Williams. We're back with the small print. And today my guest is Zoltan Istvan, who actually ran for the presidency in, in the United States. But before I carry on, we always like to ask our guests, that would be you tonight, to just introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced. Sure. My name is Zoltan Ishvan, and um, I think what a lot of people know me for is um, kind of helping to bring the transhumanism movement into the public's eye. I'm formerly a journalist with National Geographic, uh, write some op-eds for the New York Times, and, uh, and largely uh, write about transhumanism as a, as a movement and how to get people to live a lot longer and a lot better. Yeah, exactly. So to sort of summarize my understanding of transhumanism, I like to generally say it's basically to live as long as possible and prosper as much as possible using whatever means we have available to do that. Would you agree with that? And could you maybe explain the difference between transhumanism and posthumanism for people that don't understand the distinction? Uh, well, yes, no, the way you describe transhumanism is fine. You know, the one thing I like to say to people really is it's a social movement. A lot of people don't realize that it's actually kind of like environmentalism or even a political movement. It, it, you know, it's just a social movement of millions of people around the world that are trying to use technology to dramatically improve their lives. And I don't mean like just the use of the iPhone or something. I mean, like robotic limbs, uh, jetpacks, uh, you know, uh, flying cars, these kinds of things that really can change society, the way, or maybe even mind uploading. But I, I'd say, you know, regarding transhumanism and posthumanism, it's funny that that topic's been in the news a lot, like the difference. Honestly, first off, the difference is really subjective. It's really, you know, and, and, there, and I got to say, that in my opinion, as someone who follows the news and writes a lot of the news and stuff, what not as a journalist, I don't think society has really came to a concrete conclusion of the difference between transhumanism and posthumanism. Most people would say that posthumanism is something that happens after humanity in itself has been lost. Whereas transhumanism is really trying to implement technologies today. And uh, I would say posthumanism is more artificial intelligence when we're not really flesh anymore. But again, that's just my opinion. Whereas transhumanism is today, you know, uh, we're uh, trying nootropic brain drugs, you know, we're, uh, oh, I have a chip implant in my hand. I mean, things like that are already occurring and certainly will be occurring more than the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, it can sound very, very futuristic, but let's be honest, we've been augmenting our bodies for an awfully long time. I mean, there's you got sort of really medieval dentistry that was going on. We have all sorts of devices that we implant into our bodies and we use all sorts of prosthetics, everything from prosthetic limbs to glasses or to hearing aids. It doesn't have to be scary. It can just be about self-actualization or about correcting some of the things that have gone wrong with us biologically due to accidents or injury or, or accidents of birth. So I don't think that it, we should be scared of this. And that is, of course, the thing with transhumanism is that it is fundamentally progressive and optimistic about the future and technology. I don't think it's possible to be a, a pessimistic transhuman or would you disagree with that? No, no, I fully agree. I mean, I, I often tell people it's the most optimistic philosophy out there. And it's also what people don't really realize is the number one goal of transhumanism is to try to overcome death with science and technology. So it happens to be also the most humanitarian uh, movement out there that I know of, because we're not just interested in making you live better or longer. We're interested in literally taking away the most fundamental issue that humanity has, which is people dying. And I think uh, when you talk to a lot of transhumanists, you realize that they're sort of life extensionists underneath this umbrella of science and technology. They just want to live as long 
as possible using science and technology to, to do that. Okay, so let me interrogate that a little bit, because I think that there is a question that I have not fully resolved for myself when it comes to the mission of transhumanism. Would you say the transhuman, that the transhumanist mission is fundamentally individual or collective? Is the ultimate goal in order for the individual to live as long and prosperous as possible, or is the ultimate goal for the greater good to extend the immortality or amortality of the human or post-human or transhuman project at large. Because I think for a lot of people listening to the show who grapple with political ideas, there's always that tension between the individual and the group. And on what side of that sort of divide does transhumanism tend to land? Or is there a way to bridge that divide? Well, obviously, there's, there's a good way to bridge the divide. But I got to say, you know, I come across as a pretty uh, hardcore individualist almost always. And because I, I subscribe to many libertarian philosophies, many um, individualistic ideas, that's just how I've been my whole life and how I've run my political campaigns. That said, I want to point out that the vast majority of the movement itself seems to be more collective. Um, and there, there's actually a lot of angst in the community that one of their kind of more visible people is such an individualist. But I believe fundamentally that you really can't move society forward without individuals at the forefront going after their own good and trying to achieve that. Um, whereas, you know, I think transhumanism as a, as a whole is very good for the collective because it's actually raising everyone's standard of living. But I do want to say, um, you know, when I began my career in transhumanism, maybe seven, eight years ago, uh, I wrote the novel, The Transhumanist Wager. And the, the Transhumanist Wager, the, the, this, this book, just for your readers to know, um, it, it, argues, it argues that, it's not about the individual or the collective. It's actually about the result. And the result is probably going to be sometime in the 100 or maybe 50 years or 200 years, some artificial intelligence is going to become far smarter than the human being, maybe in 10 years, and go through the singularity and evolve into what might be like a, a godlike being. And then transhumanism would not have been for either the individualistic or the collective, but really for the creation of this one entity to become kind of spread itself across the cosmos and so that's really, you know, when you talk about the philosophy of transhumanism, where's it really going? But in the meantime, we're here stuck on planet Earth with this body of flesh that's, as many, would, many transhumanists would say, is terminally ill because we're all dying of aging. We should, uh, you know, pursue it as, as, a, as, a, you know, as a movement to help us overcome those aims right now. And I do so in a very individualistic, I think, way. I also tends to skew more towards individualistic than collectivist policy. That is just my nature. I know that I'm in a minority, particularly in the market that I'm in, but I think it's worth putting that out there. So it's nice to have hear you say that you can come at this from different ideologies and still kind of end up at the same place, though. So it's always good to try and reach across the divides. We have too many divides in our society right now as it is. But that kind of brings me to the next sort of, I suppose, tricky question around this space is that what you really are talking about here is declaring war. And I have heard you use this term in various media places before on aging and on death rather than war against people, war against the things that are killing us. But of course, as we've started to see, and I think that it's almost unavoidable to kind of grapple with these questions in the year 2021, just after COVID and all the rest of it, when it comes to war against sickness and death, that war can be much like the war on terror, infinitely 
elastic. After all, what is the price or the value of a life? There's always something worth fighting for. So how do we reconcile this, speaking a bit more from po political point of view, which does ultimately have to involve the collective, how do we reconcile transhumanist ideals with practical policy on the ground and that infinite elasticity of the mission that you really are working towards? What is too much of a sacrifice towards this goal? Or is there no sacrifice that should be too great in pursuit thereof? Well, I mean, I, I would take just on a philosophical basis that there's really no sacrifice too great except for us to somehow enslave ourselves. And, and I mean true slavery in the terms where we really don't have any freedom, maybe something more like 1984, not sort of this quasi-socialism that America is going through right now, maybe other places in the West. Uh, you know, that, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not happy with the, the, the clampdown on a lot of my freedoms in the last 10, 20 years, especially since 9-11. But um, we still are broadly free in America to go out, start businesses, do what we want to do. If we ever get to a place where they've really clamped down entirely, and they say, for example, in my novel that it's really uh the religious right says we can't pursue transhumanism because it's against the word of god that's the kind of point when i think then a real conflict could develop but right now thankfully like i live near silicon valley everyone has the freedom to start the businesses they want there's a ton of red tape and that sucks but it is nice to do it but i think the you know the idea really with with transhumanism is that we can kind of find our way outside of the pressures around us and, 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 you know, I, I guess when you ask about what a war on transhumanism, I think the thing that's important to understand is that people are rational. We just have to get to them. They, 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 they are reasonable. And if you can convince somebody of a single fact, and that single fact is if we can overcome death with science and technology by the year 2030 versus the year 2050, we will save 1 billion lives. That's more lives than have been lost through all the wars, through so many other different things. It's the greatest mission on planet Earth to overcome death. So it is in everyone's best interest. And when you talk about how far should governments go, even me saying this, how far should private companies go? How far should individuals go? You know, I think there should be nothing held back, really. And for me, for example, for me, I dedicate my life. That's really what the, that concept of the transhumanist wager is about. You make a wager sort of like Pascal's wager, except instead of believing God, you're believing in science and technology, and you dedicate all your resources to that in order to achieve an indefinite lifespan. Once we get there, then we can go back to whatever people want to do. But in the meantime, as long as death is hanging over us and there's no proof there's an afterlife, I feel that it's imperative that society does everything in its power to try to spend as many resources on achieving the, you know, the, the elimination of death. And let me just say, if you want to talk about a technical thing to do, uh, how we can make the world uh, have the true war on death, it's really the easiest thing to do would be declare aging a disease. Just from a psychological and cultural level, if we would do that, billions and billions of dollars would flow from the institutions that fund science in order to try to stop death. But right now, the governments won't declare aging a disease because they're very Christian-oriented. They believe we all want to go meet Jesus in the end and things like that. And therefore, they don't consider aging a negative thing. Whereas almost all transhumanists would say the greatest dilemma in the planet right now is psychologically, nobody believes aging is negative. And so transhumanists, we could do one thing, we would turn that cultural viewpoint around and let people know that aging is actually um, a horrible, horrible tragedy. 
That's a very good point. And that sort of brings me to the next question, which is you did try run for the presidency in the United States with a transhumanist Bill of Rights. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on some of the key points therein that you think governments are simply not paying enough attention to at the moment? Because what we really are talking about here is a global project and any government that does not have a transhuman post-human plan in play is very, very likely to be left behind. And we have spoken about this on this show with Dan Fagella about the stakes involved with these sort of long run, high stakes, global gains. Sure. Well, the Transhumanist Bill of Rights was created in 2015 upon the steps of the Supreme Court. I, I wrote it when I was running for the presidency there and I've done other campaigns afterwards, but it did gain some ground. There's a lot of people considering it. It did pretty, it, it's kind of far versus, and I must say, that since there's been version two, version three, which Wired covered, um, it, it's now crowdsourced. And now the Transhumanist Bill of Rights has nothing to do with me, but it has to do with all individuals who get to adjust it every time um, a renewal comes up for it. So it's, it's become a really fun and exciting thing to watch evolve because I think I got to say, like, it's crazy that bills of rights don't evolve. We have machines that have super intelligence. We have all these different, you know, genetic editing techniques. We have all these different world changing technologies. And people still want to pretend that their constitutions written often two or 300 years old are, 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 can adapt. And it just doesn't work. And so that's what's great about the Transhumanist Bill of Rights. But, you know, some of the things the Transhumanist Bill of Rights says that, for example, you know, if governments are going to spend any money, they should spend some money on um, the kind of existential security, insecurity that is out there from either asteroids or plagues like COVID. I mean, you know, our, we would have had vaccines to COVID uh, long before actually COVID arrived because we would have gone out there and tackled these things way before uh, they had actually come about. And it's the same thing with, you know, different existential risks. I mean, we're all just one asteroid away from a big problem on planet earth, despite all our, you know, grandiose thoughts and, and things that we bought or whatever. So those are some of the things in the Transhumanist Bill of Rights. It would declare aging a disease. It would make it some morphological freedom, which is a key part of transhumanism, the right to do anything to your body that you want to do so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, which is a core tenet of transhumanism. So a lot of these different rights are built into it, but it really sets up the age for cyborg rights, which means at some point there'll be consciousnesses with, um, superintelligence built into them, and there will be some individual civil protections offered to them right off the bat. Fantastic. So do you think any governments out there, anywhere well, in, in planet Earth, have actually started adopting any of these principles? Who do you think is the most transhumanist progressive government around at the moment? Well, unfortunately, the, the most powerful transhumanist government is really the Chinese government, because they're the ones leading the, the forefront on a lot of these technologies as a secular nation, they don't have the kind of Judeo-Christian hangups that we have with modifying our bodies. So that's a big dilemma, but they're not taking a lot of the individualistic ideas of the Transhumanist Bill of Rights. Certainly they're going the opposite direction with it. Um, but you know, there might be hope in something like uh, some of the Scandinavian countries taking it first, uh, might be hope in some Estonia and some of the smaller uh nations that might have more to gain from adopting it. I mean, you, you, but then you had like Saudi Arabia pretend to make a robot a citizen or whatever, you know, I mean, some people are taking the, some of the cyborg rights for, for show without really implementing it. Maybe Dubai has the best chance of doing something. I've actually spoken with the government, spoken on the Transhumanist Bill of Rights um, at the invite of the prime minister, at his office. So, you know, I mean, the, these things have happened, but I don't know how seriously it's been taken. If it's just being taken as kind of a, ooh, look at what's, look at the newest, you know, fashionable thing. 
But um, it's going to be a while probably before big governments implement uh, some of the, the basics in the Bill of Rights into their own constitutions. Is that because they are afraid to do so? Or is that because they simply don't see the urgency or the importance, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think it has 100%, well, maybe not 99% to do with the fact that those in government positions are often um, old white males who are Christian or religious. And that's just a fact. And if you look in America, and they're lawyers. And so if you look at America, like really what constitutes the majority of the government, where the power is held, it's held to these people that really don't want to change. It's kind of like getting my father, who used to be alive, to change his mentality after 70 years. That It becomes very difficult. The plasticity of the brain is gone, whereas it's all the younger people that really make the transhumanist movement what it is. And that while they might be quite collective at this moment, eventually they're going to you know, get jobs and do whatever they got to do and buy houses and kind of join the real world and say, wow, red, red tape sucks. But Right now, I got to say, the reason the Transhumanist Bill of Rights and ideas like that aren't being considered more strongly is because we have a bunch of old people um, holding government positions that are reluctant to give up their way of thinking. <coughs> From my perspective, I have definitely seen society take quite a conservative turn. I'm not talking about the conservative party like you might have in the United States or in the UK. I'm seeing conservatism coming across the board in that people seem to be quite anti-technology, quite anti-progress. And we can look at the example of how much hate the billionaires who have been trying to jump into the space market have had directed towards them. People are not celebrating advances in technology. There seems to be a sense of fear and regression and retreat. There are also ideas such as degrowth, which are taking deep-rooted hold across economies across the world. And they're spilling over, of course, into lots of limitations on what could be done with technology, whether you're talking about sort of biotech or more sort of silicone-based tech, whatever it is. I've definitely noticed that cooling down in the general celebration of humankind's progress. Is this something you have noticed too? And how does it impact on your place in the world? Yeah, well, I, I've definitely noticed it. I mean, I feel like uh, especially conservatives are, are somehow anti-technology, which is crazy because I kind of find myself more leaning towards conservative viewpoints, but being very open-minded, which is what ultimately I think puts me more in a libertarian camp because I, I think libertarians are quite excited about the prospects of, of technology, but conservatives themselves seem to be afraid of it. You know, I think, again, the basis of conservatism, at least in America, is that you belong to the Judeo-Christian framework, which says, and the Bible would say, don't modify your body because it's against God. Only God has control over death. The temple of, of human beings is, a, is, I'm sorry, the body of human beings is a temple given by God. So religious thinking is really built into the framework of how conservatives view the world. And technology is all about changing our lives. It's about change. And somehow we have, you know, unfortunately, a, a very collective this mindset pushing, especially in Silicon Valley, pushing the technology forward. Well, it should be the conservatives who are more money oriented pushing the technology forward. None of it ever makes sense to me. And I think that's what you're sort of saying. I would say in the last five, 10 years, and I've been a journalist for 30 years now, I, the media makes less and less sense to me. People make less and less sense to me. I think everyone is halfway crazy half the time. And that's kind of what is happening is I think we're being challenged because technology, regardless whether we like or not, is changing. It's getting faster. It's getting better. Our lives are truly being impacted. I mean, when you look at, I think you read probably the other day that 
that Japan came up with the technology for downloading speeds, and you could download all of Netflix's library twice in a second. I mean, the speed of these things is getting so incredible, and I think it's overwhelming for a lot of conservative people. And for some reason, the, the left has been running with it, as they do in Silicon Valley. But I wish everybody would just champion technology. It seemed like 100 years ago, that's the way it was. Everybody was like, great, let's overcome disease. Let's change the world. But now everyone, a lot of people seem to be crazy, in my opinion. I, I don't know what's going on. If, if it's social media that's making people crazy or if it's the media landscape that's changing that dramatically. But it is ironic and the contradictions are everywhere these days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the progressive sides of the, the global sort of political sphere are also pushing back against technology, but for ethical reasons, like the tech ethics space is very anti-technology. It's very anti-doing new things. It's it's erring on the side of cautiousness. And perhaps that's because there has been, over the last sort of 10, 20 years, a big movement towards sort of moving fast and breaking things. And I think a few people have found themselves a little bit battered and bruised in that process. So it seems to be a great phase of of sort of caution when it comes to what we could be doing, what we should be doing going forward. And that might be holding us back from where we could be going, according to your view of the world, as to how strange, new, crazy, and exciting the future really could be if we got behind what is possible. And let me do, say one thing, though. While everyone, you know, I agree with you, the ethicists are like so backwards half the time, whatnot. The good news, and this might not be, you know, it depends on who you are, but the good news is I can tell you that the innovators in Silicon Valley um, are so much wealthier than they've ever been. I mean, if you, the one thing we can notice from COVID is that technology has dominated its world and people that really move the world forward with innovation have more money than ever before uh, because of these things. I mean, I, I, even my own self, I've seen my wealth double for not doing anything. And how am I spending it? Well, I'm now spending on, on wine that involves nootropic drugs. And, you know, I think everybody around the world is spending an enormous more amount of money on innovation. So all the ethicists and all the colleges, and universities can say whatever they want to about how we're moving too fast. But as long as the economy is good for those people that want to innovate, that's the direction of the world. That's the, been the saving grace of all that I can tell you with this, the last few minutes of conversation, because I can't uh, agree with you more that Everywhere I look, I'm just the contradictions blow me away. Why would people ever want to stop technologies that can help people, genetic editing that might be able to eradicate cancer forever and things like that? And all these people in the media just love to jump on and how evil it is. But the good news is that the people that actually invent things have more possibility of invention than ever before. And I see this with all the startups in Silicon Valley uh, they're just moving forward like uh, just crazy speeds. And, the, you know, thankfully that has countered this. They just do it very quietly, more quietly now because they don't want to. It's almost I know a lot of companies, Silicon Valley, don't even want to release their items to the press anymore because they, they're worried about the backlash. But they, mm -hmm. they know that there's money to be made off those innovations. And so thankfully they'll be hitting the market, whether the press is bad or not. Oh. Listening to what you're saying, is the whole transhumanist movement stoppable? Can anyone actually stop this train if they choose to do so? Or do you think it is inevitable that humanity is going to evolve beyond natural selection towards more intelligent design and towards some sort of post-human endgame? Oh, I think it's 99% it's, it's guaranteed that the transhumanist age will come. 
there may be some conflicts and may be a great war. Um, it may come from religious people that really just want to, you know, I mean, the world is still 85% religious. And uh, as long as they believe in an afterlife, um, they may say that we don't want the life that transhumanists are bringing. But I just think from an economic perspective, we have created a world where if you took out technology or tried to stop it, you would stop the heart of the world. So I think the best way forward is, is probably, you know, <laughs> we have all this conflict, we have all this uh, contradiction and people bash and bash it, but it's like the stock market. The stock market tends to go up and do its best when it's being bashed the most. When everyone's saying, oh, it's too high, it's too high. That's just a, a historical reality. And maybe this, the movement of transhumanism will do best when there's most people fighting against it. I do this all the time. You know, my, one of the reasons my 2016 presidency was so popular was because I traveled through the Christian heartland in America and that created the most news. I mean, they didn't want to see me talking to liberals in Silicon Valley. Everybody knows transhumanism there. They wanted to see me in the mega churches of Alabama handing out transhumanist pamphlets. That's how the, you know, my campaign started to spread in a very large way. And I think transhumanism is kind of doing that same thing. We're fighting a wall of worry. It's going to work. I mean, nobody's going to give up overcoming blindness. No one's going to give up, you know, overcoming cancer. It's just the question of trying to do it that fits within people's cultural framework. And like I said, right now, the biggest problem is that people think aging is something that's good, that you, when your grandparents, or your parents die, it's, it's happiness. But we need to change that. We need to get people to realize that, you know, if they don't have to do that, they don't, it would be better not to do that. It would be better economically, be better for our emotional, be better for our grandkids and kids and things like that. So it takes a cultural revolution as well as a scientific revolution. And I think um, transhumanism will win, but there's going to be a lot of conflicts along the way. And what do you think the risks are, just because we have to cover all sides of, of this sort of conversation, of us reaching some sort of Tower of Babel moment where we actually end up causing an extinction level event for humanity before we reach that next level up? Well, yeah, I think artificial intelligence is really the 800 pound gorilla in the room. It's the one you need to worry about. And everyone is right when they say, wow, do we really want to create an intelligence that's smarter than us? What if it chooses not to like us? What if it chooses to control nuclear weapons? What if it just creates viruses? So there is a real danger there. I would say outside of that, though, and, and we could through international coalitions and maybe even regulatory bodies, I hate to speak of regulatory bodies, but maybe AI for the very first time could be the first thing that actually might require it. But other things like genetic editing, we can all go bonkers into changing you know, the physiology of our bodies, becoming much stronger, living indefinitely, and maybe becoming far smarter. I mean, we could enter a Star Wars age in 100 years. If we just played our games or, you know, played our cards right. Um, I think, you know, it's really only AI that presents a danger. I think everything else should be basically a free for all. And let's just see uh, what happens. I do understand the dangers of AI. Um, if, you, if your <laughs> listeners haven't seen the term, movie Terminator, obviously they have. It's, um, it's, it's a true philosophical premise. It, you know, the idea that what happens when machines become smarter than human beings? They become sort of like ants to us. And that is a real dilemma. I wouldn't invite aliens to our planet if they were 100 times smarter than us. Just because, I mean, it would be great to see them, meet them, but 50-50 whether they like us. So you have to remember that when it comes to that single technology. Absolutely. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, we have 
come to the end of our half an hour. So I just want to give you a final moment. If you've got any points that you didn't get to that you want to make, if you are welcome to do so, give you the closing word there. And then if you can also tell people where to find you, if it is that you want to be found. So this last year we had um, international kind of, well, we're, we're selling on international rights to this documentary, Immortality of Bus. It's about this giant coffin bus that I drove across the country, but it really is about transhumanism. And yeah. um, we are working on all these different things, but I, I actually have not seen a timeline for South Africa. I know Europe is supposed to be in the next one to two months, but I would, I would have just said your viewers could go and, uh, and um, you know, and watch that because it's a fun hour. Oh, wait, but the other documentary that, <laughs> yeah, that, that I had is, is unfortunately not out, but thank you for so much for having me. And I'm, uh, and I have nothing else to say, but it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.